Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and these are Emma Sassick's interviews with the Oscar-nominated production designer for Babylon, Florenza Martin, and the film's Oscar-winning editor, Tom Cross. What about you? Sorry? If you could go anywhere in the whole world, where would you go? I always wanted to be part of something bigger. I love that answer. Something that lasts, that means something. Something yes. more important than life. Yes. It's written in the stars. I am a star. I had money, I would only spend it on things that were fun, you know? Not boring things like taxes. I'm just wanting for everyone to party forever. When I first moved to LA, signs on all the doors said, no actors or dogs allowed. I changed that. And now, y'all ready for something different? You've had a very busy year. I was just looking, you had Babylon this year, and then also Blonde, too. I know that this is a time when people are very reflective of the year that they've had. How would you describe this one? (laughs) That's really perfect and beautiful world. I think very reflective of working with an incredible team to have the opportunity to make this big world of Babylon and Blonde, just to set the audience into, like, immerse them into the world in very different ways, you know, on Blonde to tap into the emotional journey that Marilyn Monroe is going through, um, reflected in the environments that she lived in, and then in Babylon, just working at the scale to create really key pinnacle moments in history with the silent studios and sound it's been really wonderful to look back on this journey I mean it's always incredible when you have someone such as yourself who does work on two entirely different projects Uh, Mm -hmm. one is the silent era the 1920s one is more later 1940s 50s but you can tell that there are definite changes in terms of style and just how society lived. It seems like Damien Chazelle gave you quite a lot to do with Babylon. Yeah. It seems like this is the first time that you two have teamed up. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, this is our first collaboration. And 
I read the script and was completely blown away. I mean, he wrote the world into the story. And so the moment you finish, you just wanted to start researching and understanding and seeing what this, you can't believe it, just this cacophony and this visual tapestry that he created. And when we first met, it was just really important to him to tap into the visceral feeling of Mm -hmm. for the audience of like what it felt like to be present in the 20s that was surprising to us just the fact that they were shooting on a silent film set in the middle of barren Los Angeles like the last place that you would think that they were (laughs) expecting this and all the homes that were being fabricated such a kaleidoscope of architecture you know all this revival periods like you see today you know for people that live in Los Angeles you drive by and you see a Tudor home and a mission home next to a Spanish home and that's because people were coming from the east coast in Europe and constructing their idea of wealth or knowledge or taste society it was incredible to dive into that with Damien and he storyboards the whole film. And he, oh, okay. so that's really amazing to have that come from his hand and his eye of what he is stitching together. And then he has a 400 page notebook of images, just breaking down all these storyboards that were very specific for him and the images that went with it. And then the images that then inspired us that we would share together. So there was a lot of visual imagery that lined the entire art department and then production office Mm -hmm. because we had I mean I think we had over 120 sets on this film so it makes sense because I'm thinking of the scenes when Nellie is just starting out on her film career and it's Mm -hmm. a huge working studio and it's not just her tap dancing on a bar for people (laughs) but that movie's going on there's that huge giant battle scene with thousands of people that's another set and then you have all these other little vignettes of movie sets yeah when it comes to all of that I guess since you were saying that Damien kind of storyboarded everything for you and had all those photos is that a little daunting or is it helpful or is it a little bit of both I think it's definitely both it has everyone be on the same page of what our goals are, but then we have to figure out how we're going to get there to those levels. And uh, we're really fortunate to find a ranch in Peru where we could build Kinescope from the ground up, which was important because it was very timed to music um, and to specific camera movements that Damien and Lena Sandegran, our amazing DP a cinematographer created. So you had to navigate the studio very specifically. And that that studio was all influenced by Poverty Row and actually like 1910s silent oh, film okay. studios. Mm-hmm. Because by the 20s, they were pretty developed. And they were they had these things called shooting stages. But we wanted to really comically have Nellie step into a very ragtag <laughs> affair in contrast to this big epic scale of this battlefield shooting on a movie ranch like we did shoot on a movie ranch in the 1920s with you know 700 extras and real explosions and real camera picture cars running into camera towers and we were able to do that all practically and so it just takes like a lot of conversation with all of our incredible heads of department and crews to 
put that together at that scale and in camera. It's incredible, like opportunity. It's wild yeah. <laughs> to have to hear that. I mean, just knowing that there are 700 bodies around yes. you. Yes. And there's like the scale of, you know, the textures, like Mary Sofras and I spoke early about how textural and visceral that we wanted everything. And she's using the real dirt at the Kinoscope Studios and finding these amazing medieval battlefield costumes coming from Europe and like designing the flags with our prop master Gabe Perello that are crossing the scene. And I'd say that this film is just all about that incredible team effort. What would you say was either your favorite set to work on or really just a favorite part of the research project? Because you have to know a little bit before you go into it. And I know that those are two wildly different processes. I think the research, just researching the silent film to sound and creating this world at first where you're experiencing early 1920s Hollywood in this desolate, barren desert in contrast to what they were building and then going into sound where it was this claustrophobic removal of nature and sound and you're going into these like sound boxes and camera boxes and sets with lights like the research of the technology and that development was really fascinating but then I think my favorite set sequence is the beginning of the film where uh, you're going from setting the scene of Los Angeles in this like barren desert road in 1926 this palm tree and this elephant and then that road (laughs) is taking you to Don Wallach's, the studio executive's Castle in the Sky, which is a real location built in 1926 by a real estate developer of Hancock Park that built his party palace an hour away from Los Angeles. Oh, what a perfect spot. (laughs) No, it's unbelievable. And it's like, I mean, it's wild. It's literally this gothic rock castle with 360 degree views of the desert because no one else was mad enough to build anything there it's complete there's no reason to be living there it's it's completely resourceless and hot and arid I live in the desert in Palm Springs so anytime I see like all these mansions and gorgeous homes built here I'm like but why it's so hot (laughs) it's amazing and then just stitching all of that together of Damien's vision of how those scenes were going to come together and the contrast of always being able to go back out into desert, the yeah. desert and then showcase uh, this lavish detailed world that we found at the Ace Hotel in the foyer that was built by the silent film actors in the twenties. And it's in Spanish Gothic style. So it's just like dripping with detail. So you have this mad wild party happening in this construct of a studio model of his idea of what it meant to be rich and wealthy. Then you're going out and seeing this desert. And so that was all just the visual notes that were really important to Damien and then to myself to execute and to be able to tell the story of what it felt like to create these dreams, you know, in the middle of nowhere, basically. And I know that color definitely plays a huge mm-hmm. role in this film, too. I mean, it's some moments are very bright. Some moments are a little bit darker. I guess, how do you tell that story to complement the main story, the side plots, all of that? Early on, you're looking at a lot of black and white photography, and I found a photographer who sent out 
photographers around the world to capture photographs in color for the first time. And they went to Southeast Asia, Mexico, Europe, and it was amazing just to see the explosion of color on the plate. And that just tied into the story of construct and the story of creating your dreams so that we were in this arid Los Angeles desert and they were creating and fabricating their idea of society. So you have Eleanor St. James office, which is these deep saturated burgundies and Victorian because she's the old guard. So we set her back in like the 1890s. And then you have the airiness of Jack's home, which is a Spanish mission hacienda. Um, so styled in early California antiques. And then you get Don Wallach, which is this lavish, gothic opposite of what you would ever build in <laughs> a desert in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> and so with Mary too, and Damien just always looking at how color felt, if the sets were going to be that moment of expression. First, when you see Don Wallach, you're in this deep red, you know, saturated bedroom, and then you step into this golden ballroom and then the costumes come alive with Nellie's red dress and all the props that Gabe Perello, her fabulous prop maker with heads and big colorful umbrellas and I think because the the film you know is very rich and full of a lot of moments cut together with a lot of places and characters that you're seeing for moments that it was really important to create a world for each of them that was very distinctive and so that was also the way that we looked at color was that uh, we were shaping you know the sound sets to have their distinctive color palettes so that as we're watching the story that we knew where we were. It's always so fascinating what color design style can do for a movie. I just want to thank you so very much for your time. We do have to wrap up, but I could talk to you for hours if given the chance. Oh, so <laughs> we barely started. Thank you, Emma. I really appreciate it. You know what we have to do? We have to redefine the form. Map those dreams and print them into history. Look up and say, Eureka! I'm not alone. I'm in so much trouble, Manny. We have to leave now. What I do means something. You thought this town needed you. It's bigger than you. <laughs> It's the most magical place in the world. Listen up, all you big dick, Mr. Man! Who wants to see me fight a fucking snake? Fuck yeah! Tom, thank you so much for your time today and for chatting with me for a little bit for Next Best Picture. I guess the first question that I was thinking of for you is, how are you feeling? Have you had a moment to breathe since editing this film? Oh, my God. This uh, Babylon was probably the toughest project I've ever worked on. So <laughs> I'm I'm still catching my breath. It, it was it was a sprint the whole way. <laughs> 
I mean, I was wondering, does he have carpal tunnel syndrome? Does he have a my brain? I think my, all of this? my brain probably has carpal tunnel syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, even though I'm sure you had so much work to do on this film. I mean, I have seen it two times now. I've thoroughly enjoyed it at this point. So I'm so happy oh, to be able wow. to speak with you about it and this mammoth of a film that you've gotten to to take care of. I Thank know you. you. Thank you so much much for seeing it twice. Of um, course. That's amazing. Yes, yes, of course. I know that you and Damien have collaborated on a few films at this point, um, and you have won an Oscar for your work in one of his films. How was Babylon different in terms of either the collaboration process or just the different ways, strategies you wanted to tackle this film? That's a really good question. I mean, I, I think, like I said, Babylon was definitely the most difficult, challenging movie um, that we've worked on together. And the big part of it was just that it was, uh, we've never worked on this scale before. It's, it's the biggest movie we've done together. It's an ensemble movie with multiple characters. Mm -hmm. I mean, usually, usually we work on these two handers. It's Whiplash and La La Land are kind yeah. of two character movies. First Man is a single character movie. And so this was very challenging because Damien always knew he wanted to tell a story about Hollywood, but tell it through the perspectives of these different characters. So in that way, it was challenging because of the size, but, but I think it was also challenging just to, to tell a story this big and keep up the energy. Mm -hmm. That was a big mandate from Damien was that, that this would be big, but it would feel like Wolf of Wall Street or Whiplash. He really wanted it to be high energy and, it's a music-driven movie, so the the adrenaline and the the coked-up energy <laughs> and the up-tempo, you know, rhythms were all kind of driven by Justin Hurwitz's music. So Justin Hurwitz's music really became kind of a, a guide for for the rhythm of the cutting. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It never seems to be like a one-person job. Like, you have to consider all of these different technical elements, obviously what the director, you know, wants with his film, with the writing, all of the script, all of those things, I'm sure, make your job a little bit more difficult, <laughs> too. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, the way I work with Damien would not be complete without also including Justin Hurwitz. I mean, it's really the three of us working very closely together during the editing process. Damien and I cut picture, and we cut picture to Justin's music, and then we send the picture over to Justin to make adjustments, and he'll send it back to us, and then I will then recut the picture to match his improved music. And we go through this process on, on nearly every scene, certainly every scene that has music in it, which, is, mm -hmm. which are most of the scenes in the movie. But it's, that's a process that we started on La La Land and continued on First Man, and we did it even more intensely. Working together, the three of us, we did it more intensely on this movie. And you can, you can really tell that everything kind of 
blends in together very well. I know that I, I really love the score to this film and I feel like it hits every single beat, whether it might be a transition between scenes, sequences, whatever it may be. It just all comes together so beautifully in the end. Thank you. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, the picture was absolutely braided together with music. And so that was something that I think is something where we've gotten used to doing on these Damien projects. It's something, you know, it's a very specific type of process. Uh, It's different from when I work on other movies. It's always a team effort, but it is specifically, it's the three of us working closely during the editing process. You know, you were talking earlier about trying to keep that high energy throughout the film. And there are definitely scenes where it is a crazy coked out evening, as you pointed out, and as we see multiple times throughout the film. But there are also some really great quieter moments where things might not be happening in the background at all times, but there's just some electricity going on between the actors on screen. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to know how you, I guess, either transition from those really high intensity moments to maybe those more intimate ones and how you try to keep up that editing that you had before. Well, I think something that I really admire about Damien is that he really likes to tell his story through visual language. He, he likes to tell his story through style and through, through the film editing. And that gives me a lot of great opportunities to flex certain muscles. And I got to flex different muscles on Babylon because Damien really saw this as a story that would have different tones. And those tones and atmospheres would require different styles. So it's a contrast in styles. So sometimes the editing is very fast because it's supposed to be a Coke-fueled montage. You're supposed to feel a rush. And so you're going to have quick storytelling. You're going to skip stones across a pond and very quickly. And then that is going to be bookended by scenes that are going to be a little more, for lack of a better way of putting it, a little more classical or quiet mm-hmm. scenes where you don't, you're not supposed to feel the editing. You're really supposed to feel the characters, feel the characters' eyes meeting, you know, and a scene that comes to mind is the scene with the character of Eleanor and Jack Conrad, right? Uh, Gene Smart and Brad Pitt. And that was a scene where it was important that the style of the editing uh, really be more classical, traditional, and invisible. And even though I say the style is classical, you know, sometimes we are still manipulating the image and manipulating the performances in order to perfect them. But it's important that whatever work we do is not seen. What you really want to come away with with those moments are really just these characters interacting. And you want to bring down the volume for scenes like that. Um, And again, that's something that I really appreciate about Damien's storytelling. Uh, He wanted Babylon to be loud and in your face and maximalist. But at the same time, he knew that he would need a valley for every peak. And so that means that there would be scenes that would have to be very soft and quiet. Mm -hmm. And having those soft scenes or those slower scenes would enhance what came before and what comes after. So that's something I think is I really admire about Damien's storytelling. He believes in, in stylistic contrast. I felt that those moments very much worked so well, even though, like I said, there's so many huge moments 
big sets, everything going on. It's nice to have it quiet down for a little bit. And funny enough, I was also thinking of the scene between Gene Smart and Brad Pitt when I posed that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That scene is such a gift for an editor because you just have these two great actors and they're they're giving these wonderful performances. And I just remember being really excited when the film dailies came in, just looking at all the takes. I mean, it's just such brilliant performance. And what you want to do there is really try to try to honor that work and, and protect it and enhance it in whatever subtle ways you can, invisible mm -hmm. ways. And I, I'm curious, as you have collaborated on so many different films at this point, do you ever, are you ever there while filming is taking place? Um, so you can see everything play out before you get in and do your magic <laughs> or do you kind of prefer to, to kind of keep them separated in a way? You know, that's a good question. I usually don't go to set I've been to set, I think, once on La La Land. I didn't go on First Man. I didn't go on Babylon. The biggest reason I don't go is because I'm usually too busy receiving the film dailies from the day before. <laughs> and I have my I have a full plate of work to do. So I usually don't have the time to go because mm -hmm. whatever time I spend on set means that I'm away from the editing room and away from a, from the film piling up on my on my desk. Mm hmm. Can never have too much fun, right? <laughs> exactly. It's just better. It's better for my neuroses to just dive into my homework as opposed <laughs> to putting it off. What would you say were some of, if you had one scene in mind, your favorite sequence that you had to edit as a favorite or maybe as like a big migraine inducing mm, <laughs> problem yeah. at some times. I'd love to know what some of those moments were for you. Good. Yeah. Good and bad. I mean, good and challenging. Right. I mean, this movie, this movie had a little bit of everything. I mean, so it was all difficult. I mean, this had these partying scenes. It had someone driving fast in a, in a car. It had dance numbers. It had singing. There was violence, there's sex, there's drugs, there's a little bit of everything. And I would say everything was was challenging to do, <laughs> but did to do with the level of perfection that Damien kind of wanted. But I think one big sequence that comes to mind that was both one of my favorites, but also challenging was the scene of Nellie's first sound take, mm. um, that, that whole sequence. And that's a great example of the type of stylistic reset that Damien always planned and wanted to do after coming out of the first half of the movie, which barrels at you loud and fast and like a roller coaster filled with a lot of montages, you know, we fade in on an empty soundstage and we take our time establishing the soundstage and we take our time by doing these very slow cuts of these still static locked off shots of the soundstage and, and all the details within that stage, like the microphone hanging from the grid up above, mm -hmm. you know, the sound booth that looms above the soundstage and all these other little details. Damien wanted to give the audience time to catch their breath and to be able to reset because we're about to get into a new editorial style mm -hmm. but it was important to Damien to that new style we set up also come with this kind of new era of Hollywood mm -hmm. you know you're going from the silent era which is like the wild west days of Hollywood and then you're going into this more contained 
different type of filmmaking, one that is a lot more controlled and locked off. And so it was important to give the audience a little time to kind of clean the palette and reset. And then the thing that was important to Damien about that sequence was to really revel in the repetition. Mm-hmm. And so his plan was to create a little sequence, almost a, like a preamble for every take. And that little sequence would include a shot of the red light with the bell going off. It, mm-hmm. You would see a shot of the slate boy coming in. You'd see the director waving her hand to cue the action. You'd see a detail of the door opening and then Nellie's feet coming out and walking yeah. out. And the idea was to repeat that sequence every time we start a new take. And this is something where Damien said to me, we have to make this, this, we have to use whiplash as a guide because whiplash is another sequence where he wanted to revel in the repetition. And, and the challenge in some ways was similar because in whiplash, the challenge was how do you take band practice and make that feel brutal, like a war movie. And with Nelly's first sound take in Babylon, the challenge was how do you take the sound of a pin dropping? How do you take a, a man sneezing and make that feel like <laughs> life and death? You know, you have very little to work with in some ways, but somehow you have to amplify that to make it feel like life and death. And so it was challenging in that way. But again, Damien's plan for that was to really do it through the performances, but also do it through the editing and by establishing a rhythm. So with the, the head of each take, we kind of would set up this little preamble and every time a take would break or bust, we would go back to that same preamble. But each time we went back to it, we cut it a little bit faster. And so on one hand, you keep repeating it, it, which the hope was that you would start to create this discomfort with the audience. You would start to play with their expectations. People would start wondering, you know, is this take going to, when is this take going to go bad? Or is is the take actually going to work this time? (laughs) And then you start playing with those expectations and it's almost like you're making a, you hope to make a pact with your audience, you know? So you reintroduce it each time, but each time you reintroduce it faster. And so you're subtly trying to create a rhythm with your audience. And, and by the time you get to take seven, you know, hopefully the audience is starting to feel the urgency and starting to feel that you're marching and you're on your way to some, something that an outcome that might not be good. Hands down, that is my favorite <laughs> scene in the film because not only is that just absolutely ridiculous, <laughs> but also you do think back and you're like, I'm sure that this is probably how it was. I mean, this was a whole new way of making films and so many new considerations. And I mean, everybody is just golden in that. And it's so funny. And hearing you explain kind of the back, you know, the, the behind the scenes work makes me appreciate it even more. <laughs> I mean, again, you know, Damien set out for Babylon to be a maximalist picture. He wanted yeah. <laughs> he wanted to put everything in there and, and tell a story where it is life and death by the end. And so it was important to set the table correctly for the audience so that they understood the stakes. And what is it that is so difficult about this? What, what, what is it that drives one character to take his own life? What is it? you know, that drives this character to risk everything and go to these dark places. And so it was important to kind of set that up with uh, the sequence we just talked about. 
you had to show the audience the stakes. Absolutely. I think you guys, I think you guys did more than that. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, I, Tom, I just want to thank you so very much for your time today. It was such a pleasure to chat with you and to learn a little oh, bit more about all of the madness behind this craft of yours. <laughs> it's every, every movie feels a little bit like madness. This one in particular felt like it was about madness tenfold. So for whatever that's worth. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Emma Sassick's interviews with the Oscar-nominated production designer for Babylon, Florence Martin, and the film's Oscar-winning editor, Tom Cross, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Babylon is nominated for three Academy Awards, including Best Costume Design, Best Original Score, and Best Production Design. It is now available for you to watch on VOD. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we will see you all next time. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.